Hello, and welcome to a very special podcast that is part of a series I am leading on diversity, equity, and inclusivity with CME Outfitters. Today's CMO cast is entitled Health Inequities in Inflammatory Bowel Disease Care. I'm Dr. Monica Peek, and I'm the Ellen H. Block Professor of Medicine in the section of General Internal Medicine at the University of Chicago. I'm also the Associate Director of the Chicago Center for Diabetes Translation Research and the Director of Research at the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics, all here at the University of Chicago. I'd now like to welcome Dr. Sophie Belzora. She is a Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the NYU Langone Health in New York, New York. Thank you, Monica. Good to be here. (laughs) Wonderful to have you. I'd also like to welcome Dr. Nana Bernasco, who is an Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Penn State Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I'm honored to have you joining us today and really excited for our discussion. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here tonight. Wonderful. So let's jump in with our learning objective for today's program, which is to analyze the influence of unconscious bias, health disparities, and health inequities on the care of patients with inflammatory bowel disease. I first want to remind our audience that this CMEO podcast is a continuation of our initiative to address unconscious bias, health disparities, and racial inequities. We're building a comprehensive library of educational activities and addressing these important issues always do that wrong. I want to remind our audience that this CMEO podcast is a continuation of our initiative to address unconscious bias, health disparities, and racial inequities. We're building a comprehensive library of educational activities addressing these important issues, and today's activity continues the discussion in the area of inflammatory bowel disease care. On this slide are the titles of the activities in this series, with links to each of them. To view any of the programs, simply click on the activity title. If you participate in at least three of the programs in our DNI Hub, you'll also be eligible to receive a digital badge demonstrating your commitment to education on diversity, equity, and inclusivity. As we begin to address IBD care disparities, I want to review some foundational points regarding historical racism that can help us all remember how we got here. We've done previous programs that cover these topics in depth, and those programs can be found in our DNI Hub. I just want to make sure that we recognize that we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't take a moment to recognize that we have a groundwater issue that we have to address, which is structural racism. And that sets the backdrop for the conversation that we're going to have today. Um, And so systemic racism, structural racism manifests in lots of different ways, including the disproportionate um, allocation of the things that we talk about a lot right now, the social determinants of health. So food insecurity, housing instability, um, barriers to transportation, et cetera. It also affects um, things like um, poverty and crime and things that are in our social and built environment. It affects things that are in our uh, natural environment also, like the uh, disproportionate rate of toxins and pollutants that are in our water, our air, in landfills that are more likely to be um, located next to uh, minority communities, racial and ethnic minority communities. And finally, uh, well, not finally, but amongst the list of things uh, is that it, it directly impacts bias, subconscious and conscious bias that healthcare providers have. And that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. The impact of this kinds of structural racism has a direct impact on our health. 
the indirect, uh, indirect effects of systemic racism. And so that uh, manifests in lots of different ways, such as unequal access to health care, um, differential or disparities in the kinds of care de- that's delivered to actual patients or deviations from standards of care with certain populations of patients. It affects the uh, stress that patients who are exposed to racism have. And that stress then translates into dysregulations of pathophysiology and changes in epigenetics that alters the actual body mechanics of people who are exposed to racism and discrimination and increases the risk for cardiovascular disease, cancer, chronic lung disease, and many other diseases. It can also directly manifest in mental health disease like depression, anxiety, PTSD, and others. And finally, um, it impacts long-term things that we are always constantly thinking about from a public health perspective, like how engaged people are willing to be or retained in our healthcare systems. How likely are people to uptake new technologies and new things like COVID vaccinations um, when they become available and on the market, new new medicines, new technologies, new innovations. Um, and so uh, our ability for marginalized populations to not be on the disparate end of uh, what's available in the healthcare system is in part a reflection of structural racism within our communities. And so that's the, the, the context in which we're operating to, um, in general for all of our sessions. Um, that I want to just make sure that we've reviewed before we dive into the specific of any of our clinical um, conversations. Um, and so now that we've set that uh, context, we're going to turn our attention to racial disparities in inflammatory bowel disease. So, Nana, can you begin our discussion and talk about the profound increase in the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease in racial and ethnic underserved populations? Absolutely. Uh, rates of IBD have been increasing in all racial and ethnic groups, but the distribution of growth is unequal. Um, in a study that was done in Anawan and their colleagues, they looked at the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease by race and ethnicity in a population-based inception cohort from 1970 to 2010. And what they saw was that there was a 39% increase in IBD incidence in white patients compared to a 134% increase in non-white patients. 134% increase in non-white patients compared to 39% increase in white patients. This is phenomenal. Um, Why is this happening? Let's look at some of the factors. There are delays in diagnosis and treatments in um, underserved, underrepresented populations. Because um, for some reason, IBD is underrecognized in this subgroup of people. There are so many patients that I've had contact with who show up in my office who say that, no, they've been having symptoms for a long time, but they're always told it's in their head or that they're drug seeking or whatever the reason is. But they seems like their symptoms are dismissed more um, often than not. And so this leads to this underdiagnosed of um, IBD in these subgroup of patients. Other things that can happen with these particular groups of patients is that really there is a disparity in the care for these patients. When you look at Black and Hispanic patients, they report avoiding visits more often due to cost or transportation concerns. Um, There are higher rates of IBD-related hospitalization and mortality in non-Hispanic Black patients. 
other things that they report in black patients is that they, they report that there's a decreased access to GI specialist care. Um, also, there, there's a decreased use of biologics and newer therapies in black, Hispanic, and Asian patients. Increased rates of emergency department visits in uh, black IBD patients is also noticed um, in this group. One question I have um, for you, when symptoms are sometimes um, not validated, I've always wondered if um, people are more likely to be diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have quite a number of patients that I see in my clinic who have never had any sort of studies done. You know, maybe they get an abdominal x-ray and that's basically it. And they're told that their symptoms are irritable bowel syndrome. And as we know, IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So how could you rule that out without actually doing any further testing on that patient? And so by that time that patient gets to you or somebody takes them seriously, their disease is far gone than, you know, anticipated. And that's because their, their symptoms were ignored. They were told that it was in their head or they were making it up or they were seeking pain medicine, which is what I hear a lot too. Yeah, yes. So what what are some of the, um, can you talk a little bit more about some of these driving forces behind the disparities? I'm sorry, I missed that. Is that for me? And your name. Oh, my bad, my bad. It is for an S. Um, That's okay. I just wanted to be sure. I was like, oh. Yes, that is you. Because uh, I'm, I'm sorry, we really, we not, more frequently, you just have one person as opposed to two. So, and both of okay. you have last names that end in B. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me retake. <clears throat> so, Sophie, can you talk about, uh, actually, let me give yourself another little space. So, Sophie, what are some of the driving forces behind these disparities? So that's a great question. And I think there are many that uh, have been looked at, but we don't have all the answers. And I think that both of you have kind of laid a good foundation as to why we're seeing the um, the disparities that we do. But things that have been looked at, um, which were touched upon briefly by Nana, were a medical management optimization, right? There have been studies that have shown that, um, unfortunately, it's difficult to find uh, a gastroenterologist, let alone an IVD specialist, to treat patients who are considered to be underserved or, um, um, you know, minoritized patients. And so when you have a patient who is less likely to see an IVD specialist, that uh, spills into the fact that those people who are non-IVD specialists are less likely to be comfortable administering the medications that, um, you know, the patients require, right? So the more severe disease requires certain medications like biologics, right? Um, other immunosuppressants. And if they're not comfortable with that because they don't see patients with IBD frequently, then it does a disservice to those patients who we're now seeing in much higher numbers who are suffering from inflammatory bowel disease. And then, of course, there's cost, right? And that feeds into the social determinants of health. These medications are expensive. And though there are some programs to help lower the cost, sometimes that out-of-pocket cost is still, you know, exorbitant and too difficult for patients to pay who already have um, all these other burdens to deal with. And so when we think about that issue of financial toxicity, right, which um, I think originally kind of came out of the cancer literature, uh, definitely is applicable here, right? And we see that things like financial toxicity plays a huge role in, in other things like mental health issues and things that we see in higher numbers in populations with inflammatory bowel disease. And I think the last thing that is very interesting to note um, that came out of a study um, 
that uh, was from Chicago, I believe, with Dr. Um, Ajwa Anyanyaboa and colleagues, where they looked at patients um, with inflammatory bowel disease and celiac disease, um, starting at the um, at the presentation of iron deficiency anemia. And so routinely for patients with iron deficiency anemia, um, particularly those who are postmenopausal, right, or, or um, those who are men, um, we think about things like malabsorption, right, and some of those things include inflammatory bowel disease and celiac, which are, which are um, common culprits. Um, and they found that um, those with public insurance were 91% less likely to get appropriate workup for IBD or celiac disease when presenting with classic symptoms, right? So think about all the people that you're missing and why are we missing these particular groups? And I think that that feeds into the bias, right? It's just some, some, a patient that you don't normally think of as having inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease. And that's something that is incredibly detrimental and absolutely feeds into the disparities that we see. And what was also found in that study was that white and Asian patients uh, were more likely to have private insurance than black and Hispanic patients. So it kind of goes, you know, it aligns well with that other idea that these people are less likely to receive the care that they need. And so when we know that, um, you know, people have ongoing symptoms, which um, is can be representative of complications of the disease, it's, it's less likely that the medications that they need are actually going to work once you administer them, right? So as Nana had said, sometimes people are too far gone and that inflammation then becomes scarring and more serious complications. And so those medications that they needed, um, you know, when they first presented with symptoms, uh, they were deprived of. And so, you know, unfortunately, they that can feed into worse outcomes. Absolutely. I think this is a, a great time to really talk about the cost because some of the medications that you all are prescribing are, are so exorbitantly expensive. Um, and it reminds me of uh, insulin because I'm a primary care physician, but, you know, insulin was so has become so exorbitant that it made it to Congress, you know, for them to be talking about. And one of the things um that I realized actually wrote a, a piece about it in the Lancet last year is that I learned that the United States is so uniquely different from our other Western counterparts in how we regulate our medications and how, you know, I always know that people like go to Canada for medications that are cheaper, but the entire way that we regulate um, the pricing of medicine is so uniquely different. Um, and the cost is so you know, so exorbitant here compared to other comparable countries that we are really, really doing our marginalized patients a disservice. And those are oftentimes the ones that are having a higher burden of disease. Mm -hmm. And so it's a double whammy in that they're more likely to get some of these diseases sometimes and then the ones who are the least able to pay for them. Right. Absolutely. Um and, you know, when you think about other things that we that we think of when we have a patient with inflammatory bowel disease in front of us is healthcare maintenance. Right. That's a huge um, kind of um, that's a huge area of care that is oftentimes neglected or it's difficult to know who is going to be the one responsible for that care. And when we think about, um, you know, things that need to be done routinely, but especially we need to pay attention to in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, one of which is cancer, right? Colorectal cancer in particular. When we talk about patients, when we talk to patients, particularly adults um, who have extensive colitis, one of our, the main things that we're trying to prevent is colorectal cancer. Yes. And so when you know that there are already disparities that exist that are, um, you know, both racial and ethnic and origin, and then on top of that, you think about the disparities that occur in inflammatory bowel disease, it really sets patients up, um, you know, for failure. And so we need to be incredibly, um, you know, cognizant of this reality. And so when patients are 
getting suboptimal care and then more likely to, you know, suffer from colorectal cancer, um, you know, issues of, uh, you know, surrounding pregnancy and getting the appropriate prenatal care, vaccinations, right, and appropriate eye screening and other types of screening that can be um, life-changing and life-saving. Um, we need to understand that there are certain resources that aren't being allocated appropriately because people are not being seen by, um, you know, particular specialists who know to think about these things on a regular basis. And as we talked about before, you know, depression, right? Think about all of the, um, you know, all of the stigma that's attached to depression and mental health issues. Um, and that is even more pronounced in certain populations, right? And then you see that that is even, uh, you know, in higher incidences in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Again, it's one thing compounding um, on top of another. And so when there's less access to mental health care specialists, when people are more reticent to, um, you know, to see a healthcare professional um, about their mental health illness that's tied to this now chronic disease that they're suffering from that they can't pay for their meds for and they have to go to frequent visits for and miss work for, you know, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, uh, of course, it's going to cause a lot of, um, you know, physical stress and mental stress, all of which, again, can feed into poor outcomes and widen disparities. Absolutely. And we're going to get to this later, but I, I just feel like I want to say it right now um, because we have a colleague in common who is skilled at doing um, colonoscopies when people are awake. Right. Um, and he does that specifically um, because he knows that many African-American patients don't have a ride. Yeah. And so they can't get the their right colonoscopy. Right. Um, if you don't have someone who will come and wait for you. And mm-hmm. so I had a patient who had a ride, but it was like, I am never going to be knocked out and have somebody in my behind. And mm-hmm. so, and he made me actually come with him to the colonoscopy, oh, wow. even though he was awake. Mm-hmm. And so our colleague, um, uh, he, he actually loved the procedure. He, he said, can I do this next year? No, you cannot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Some people love the clean out, you know. He loved it. He's like, on the moon. I can see all this stuff. Right. And he fell in love with our colleague, but he's like, I do this um, because, you know, so many of our patients need this additional service and can't have it because there's these additional barriers. Yep. And like you said, so many of the IVD patients need colonoscopies more often because they're at increased risk. And mm-hmm. so part of what we have to do as a profession is lean into those additional needs and be willing to go above and beyond our skill set to meet patients where they are. Um, and a lot of us may or may not be willing to do that. This colleague that we have in common is an African-American man yeah. um, who's, who's going above and beyond. And it's, it's well said that it is a skill set, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you ask, when sometimes there's a situation that arises where there are patients who can't have a procedure done in our office because of their body mass index or because they have certain heart or lung issues, and I offer them, you know, a procedure without sedation, they say, who would want that? Why would anybody choose that? And it doesn't even come in their thought process that, hey, some people don't have anyone else to lean on. Some people, you know, their 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 um, guardian or significant other or person that they rely on is wheelchair bound and would need accessoride and it would be a whole issue. Or this person has to go back to work. They actually don't have sick days to spare. Yes. Um, and so that never even comes into into play for other people. And I think that, of course, that's a privileged position that some people have. But it's important for for everyone to realize that this is an issue. Um, and that's why we need to be creative about ways like having you know, procedures that are unsedated and other means, ride shares, you know, those sorts of things to help break down and mitigate some of those barriers that are quite common. And sometimes people are, are embarrassed or hesitant to say that that's the reason. Um, and so, you know, it's it's upon us and like you said, a skill set to kind of bring those issues to the forefront so people can be more comfortable, um, you know, letting us know what those barriers are. 
Absolutely. So we've been discussing some of the disparities. Um, how do we assess contributing factors that are leading to the differences in IDPD treatments? Uh, so, I mean, it's the wonderful thing about inflammatory bowel disease, uh, especially I think in the past decade or so, um, is that there's so many new medications on the scene, right? It's really fantastic to have an opportunity to offer patients, um, you know, a cadre of different potential medications that may work well for them. Um, and I think even with the short time that I've been practicing, it's just like, boom, 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 there's a new medication every um, every week or so that's getting FDA approved, which is great. But that doesn't mean that everyone has access to it, right? And so as we were saying before, um, you know, certain people don't have access to that IBD specialist. And what does that mean? It means that those newer medications that um, can sometimes be more expensive um, are not going to be at their disposal, right? And a lot of times when we see those newer medications being used, it's in patients who've tried and, um, and have not responded to other medications that are traditionally used. And so those people are already kind of in a worse position. And the fact that they may not have access to a new medication, they may not have access to a clinical trial that allows them to, um, you know, to try this medication is a huge deal. Um, and again, another source of disparities. But then also, um, you know, some of these medications can be complicated and a lot of the potential adverse effects, you know, so it's kind of a laundry list of things to go through. And it's sometimes one of the main reasons why patients don't want to start a medication, understandably. Right. Um, but having that what we call patient activation, having that confidence in, hey, I know what my disease is about. I know what my extent of diseases. I know what surgeries I've had. I know when my last colonoscopy was. I know what it showed. I mean, you see some of these people who are extremely savvy and educated about their disease and others who are not so confident in understanding um, not only their disease, but also what the treatment plan may be, especially if it undergoes a lot of changes, if you're switching meds, if you have a lot of um, severe disease. And so when you look at, um, you know, white patients compared to, for instance, Black patients, which is a common, uh, you know, comparison, you'll see that the the confidence isn't really there, right? And that that is due to so many different things. And Monica, as you mentioned before, the social determinants of health, right? Those, um, you know, those midstream determinants like education attainment and you know housing and um, environmental toxicities all play into these sorts of results that we're seeing, right? This is not something that's in isolation. That's right. um, sometimes when you see a patient in front of you, you're going to say, hey, they just don't care about their disease. Or like they just don't get it. But there's so many factors that go into that that are beyond their individual control. And I think that that's what, you know, studies like this really represent. I mean, there's a huge difference here um, when you look at patients who are white and how confident they are in their treatment plan versus patients who are black. Um, and those who are extremely confident, only 15 percent compared to 45 percent of white patients. That's a I mean, that's like a huge that's a huge difference um, that we really need to kind of inch to narrow. It absolutely is. And, and I do a lot of my, a lot of my work is implementation science and trying to get uh, sort of behavioral interventions. And so we always measure self-confidence because that is the most proximal thing that happens before behavior change. And which makes sense. If you don't feel confident, you can do it. You're not going to even try. <laughs> Whereas if you do, yes, you can do it. Then yeah. you're more likely to try and engage in that behavior. And so that is, that, that is a, a significant thing to measure and to understand. So now I'm going to look you back into the conversation because we have just started talking again about social determinants of health and how it's related to things like self-efficacy um, and health outcomes. 
why should we pay close attention to these upstream and midstream determinants? Um, and what are the resulting downstream health outcomes? Help us sort of think about these things. So we've already talked about some of these upstream determinants. Uh, we talked about racism, poverty, um, neighborhood violence, underinsurance, um, those sorts of things that feed into the midstream determinants, which are the lack of social support, financial toxicity, poor housing conditions, food insecurity. What do you mean I'm supposed to eat a healthy diet? I can't afford a healthy diet. Um, some things like poor adherence. Um, what do you mean I have to inject myself every two weeks or once a month, you know, those things kind of feed into the downstream downstream health outcomes, which is, again, the delayed diagnosis, increased disease severity, which leads to IBD flares. And if you look at that patient who is not seeking their care from a, a, a specialist, an IBD specialist, they're probably going to urgent care or seek, seeking their care in the ED. What do they do in those situations? They give them a lot of steroids, send them on their way to follow up with a non-existent provider, and it's the same cycle over and over again. And so this, these lead to hospitalizations and prolonged stays in the hospital, more mortality for this patient, and even disability. And so it's so important that we look at, you know, these upstreams, midstream, and how it really affects the downstream healthcare outcomes for these patients. We can't look at each in a silo, basically. Um, also, um, things that we need to take into consideration, um, as I just mentioned, there there. There are some pretty telling downstream healthcare outcomes when comparing black patients um, with, IBD, with IBD to white patients with IBD. And let's look at a little bit of that in um, more detail. Mm-hmm. So an equal access to appropriate care for the black African-American patient, um, they're less likely to have annual visits with a gastroenterologist or an IBD specialist, as I said before. Um, they may be seeing an urgent care professional or, you know, ED visits as your, their routine care. Um, black and African American patients are two times as likely as white patients to visit the emergency department. Again, there is no continuity of care. They go to the place that they know they're going to get the fast medications, which are the steroids, right? And then these patients are less likely to receive treatment with anti-TNF because, again, they don't have access to specialized care, and so they're going to places that they can get the quick fix. These, in turn, um, as I mentioned, lead to higher hospitalization rates, increasing lengths of stay. Um, and, and it goes forth with, with the, the mortality for these patients. And so these patients tend to do poorer overall, again, because they just don't have the appropriate care, um, access to the appropriate care. Yes. Uh, this is a um, story that is not unique to IBD um, right. as far as people that are utilizing the emergency room because of lots of reasons, (laughs) you know, the time of the day that's convenient for them. Suddenly, you know, that's not eight to five. I find that that's true for me. You know, I'm a busy professional and like, hmm, when I'm available, all the businesses that I need to, you know, use that they're usually closed. Um, So, uh, so uh, I can, it's understandable how when people have so many things that they're burdened with, um, when they're ready to seek health care, what is available might be the emergency room or when things are really, really getting out of hand. 
Um, but when you have things like severe IBD, those can become medical emergencies. Absolutely. Uh, um, so, Sophie, let's talk about another set of outcomes that are really important, and those are stemming from social barriers. What can you can, what can you share with us about that? Sure. Um, so, you know, there's a, a means of trying to tease out different parameters that relate to the uh, social determinants of health that Nana was going into um, and create kind of a, um, a point system to see, you know, the higher the number of points, the more likely someone is going to have, um, you know, negative outcomes. And so things like um, were they born in the United States or, or were they, um, you know, did they emigrate from somewhere to here? Um, what's their housing situation? What's, what's their level of educational attainment? Um, you know, do they have a community like a church community or some other kind of place that they can go to um, to have that sense of support, right? Um, all of these things definitely play into health. And these are these social determinants that inevitably have some tie to um, patients' ability to achieve their best health or, you know, uh, health equity. Um, and so what we see in inflammatory bowel disease is that patients who had these um, higher social barrier uh, scores, again, did more poorly. And not only did they um, they have more active ulcerative colitis um, disease, right? Um, but they also suffer from depression at higher rates. And they, they could, you know, and they obviously um, uh, could sense that they had a poor overall health, right? That seems very apparent. Um, and so it's not just about how, how, um, how they feel, but this is actually seen to, um, you know, to affect their disease. And so, again, that stress, that mental stress, that lack of social support um, that can feed into financial toxicity and just how o- overall well a person is, um, uh, you know, absolutely can affect their disease. And so that's something that we need to, um, to really understand. And again, this is not siloed. We really have to look at the big picture, right? If we're going to make um, real change, real lasting change with inflammatory bowel disease in these um, underserved and um, historically disenfranchised groups, we have to look, you know, more like a bird's eye type of view Um, because it's really the same groups over and over, right? This is not a coincidence. And um, it's so important to recognize the history that led to these, uh, you know, to these outcomes Um, because, again, every chronic disease that we see, um, it's the same people suffering the most, right? This is not new news. And I think that um, what we're recognizing more is that, of course, there's more of a population um, who are black and brown who have inflammatory bowel disease. So it's good that this is being studied um, more and more often. But, um, you know, it's sad to see that in any of the fields that all our colleagues practice in, um, you know, whether it's just it's cancer and, like you said, it's, you know, heart disease or, um, or diabetes, obesity, um, you know, COVID, uh, COPD, all of these things, and imagine having all of those issues and then plus have inflammatory bowel disease. Um, I mean, it makes it uh, almost like an impossible hill to climb for some people. Absolutely. As a primary care provider, um, I see sort of the, the, the bread and butter conditions that I, that I consider to be the diseases of oppression. You know, the things that we know that have been linked to the pathophysiological um, abnormalities that occur from chronic exposure to racism. Um, and I was part of a study uh, that was done here in Chicago in two of our epicenters of violence. And we were interviewing uh, just people, middle-aged people with chronic diseases um, who um, were not a perpetrator of violence um, or a victim of violence, but just lived in a neighborhood. Um, and they had uh, higher levels of blood pressure, um, and in some of the patients, 
um, their levels of blood pressure were so high that um, based on what we know from the Framingham Heart Study, increased their risk by 50% of having a heart attack or stroke. Um, and so we know that, um, you know, community violence, social isolation, um, hypertension, racism, all of these things, you know, mix in together that impact the health of our communities. Um, and not just with one disease, but with multiple diseases. Their telomeres shorten and they suddenly have this range of strange, strange diseases that really should be going together. Mm-hmm. So that we see structural racism play out in our communities and the very people that live in those. Right. And I mean, it's just, I mean, I think what, what really drives home with this discussion that we're having is that it's not these individual behaviors, right? right. I think that's what we're used to learning. That's what we're used to thinking. I mean, that's obviously the easier way to think and, and probably the lowest hanging fruit to try to change. But ultimately, without changing these systemic issues um, that we're discussing, there's really not going to be an end to this. Absolutely. So, Nana, I want you to weigh in on achieving equitable IBD care. Um, So we've talked a lot about what we know, you know, knowledge is power. um, And you guys have been extremely helpful in just helping me think about IBD care um, because and helping me see how this is just another example, how this paradigm applies to how I think about diabetes and many other diseases. How can we shift our focus and start thinking about equitable IBD care? Nana, where should we start? Sure. So first of all, we have to screen for the social determinants of health to identify patients at risk. It's so important that we screen because not every black or brown person who walks into your office is going to have this issue. I think that it's right. We need to make that distinction, right? We have to screen and not assume that anybody that walks into the office has these same issues to deal with. And then next, we have to connect these patients to available resources. We're the ones with the knowledge, right? And so hopefully we're the ones driving these patients to resources that will be able to help them, right? These resources include faith communities, local organizations. I personally uh, refer my patients to support groups um, that I I know that exist within the IBD community. Um, If you're in a big institution that has social workers or case managers as well, they are very, very um, important in the care of these patients, and they can help out with insurances and financial assistance. We have a patient financial assistance program um, here at Hershey, Hershey, which I refer most of my patients to, who are having issues affording some of these really expensive medications. And they have been really helpful in, in working on behalf of their patients to to get um, affordable medications or even free medications for these patients. So it's really important that we as providers or as clinicians um, have access to these resources or information to these resources in order to disseminate that information to our patients. We need to plug them in so that they don't feel alone and that we put them in a position to be successful, right? Because this disease is not going to go away magically, right? It's something that they live with, and therefore they have to be able to manage it effectively. So, Sophie, do we have any data about if outcomes improve when we improve the access to these kinds of expensive treatments, such as anti-TNF? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, it's, a, it's interesting to see what will happen when 
people are given, um, you know, the access to care and the type of medications that their disease requires. Um, and so, you know, when you see that uh, black patients uh, who are exposed to anti-TNF, who have Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, um, you know, their outcomes improve um, and they more mirror, um, you know, that of their white counterparts. Um, and so that's very promising to know um, and a impetus to for us to do better and try to you know, change how the delivery system works and change how people can um, have better access to uh, IBD care. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, evidence-based medicine. (laughs) 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 And uh, I always want to think about, uh, I think a lot about sort of uh, team-based care. Um, We are... I've been talking about this for more than a decade, um, and we're in now in a place where that's considered the standard of care, but a lot of the places really are not living up to that standard. We're not having people work to the top of their license. Um, so, Nana, I'm going to toss this one to you. How and why should we educate the entire provider team, um, and, and what would that look like? Yeah, so that's a very interesting concept. And I, I will use an example because this actually happened to me last week. Um, I went to see my primary care provider and I have a bit of an unusual name. Um, and so when the nurse called me back, um, she was like, um, did I say your name right? And, and before I could even answer, she walked away from me. Um, and you know, the entire time that she was rooming me, she was very, condescending, um, very dismissive to me. And um, we were talking about something. I, I needed an EKG and she asked if I had had one before. And I was like, oh, probably when, you know, I was in nursing school, we practiced on each other. And in the same breath, she turned around and asked me, so did I finish school? Which I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> like, um, I, I was completely speechless, you know, and for me, that was so negative in that if I hadn't really had an established relationship with my own primary care provider, I probably would not have, you know, go back. And it's so important for that patient who, you know, the black or brown patient who's walking into that office who may already have some hesitancy being there in the first place, right? And then for you to be judged based on your skin color, not even from the doctor or the provider who's taking care of you, but the person who may be checking you in at the front desk or the person who's taking your temperature, who doesn't bother to explain to you the different steps that you're taking, or that they're making an assumption based on your skin color that you are not educated or you have absolutely no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. So it is so important that the healthcare team, you know, from the person who checks you in to the person who checks you out to the the pharmacist, the nutritionist, whoever is touching that patient mm-hmm. is aware um, of implicit bias and maybe even explicit biases. Mm-hmm. Well, I, mean, I think it's so important that we focus on training um, on discrimination and racial disparities in healthcare, recognizing and addressing these biases from a non-clinician staff bias, you know, meaning meaning that let's not just focus on the provider who's taking care of the patient, but the whole group, because that patient has that experience throughout their visit, right? Right. Um, so I was, I was, I walked out of that office very uh, defeated almost, um, very, feeling very vulnerable and insulted and violated. and uh, violated. Yes, that's the word violated. And, and I, I, it was just beyond me that she, she would think that I didn't even finish school based on nothing, um, you know, and, and that was my introduction to her. But 
again, imagine that patient who's super vulnerable, who's walking into that office. Um, they're probably not going to come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think about that a lot because as a physician, I have been a patient a lot. And I think if I have encountered these things at a hospital where, you know, half the people know me because I always get my care where I work and I am super empowered, mm-hmm. you know, what must the experience be like? For patients who don't have the information, the social connections, the, you know, whatever, to try and navigate their way through this system. And, you know, what are they experiencing? What kind of humiliation? You know, what extra layers of shade and discrimination are they going through? Because I have been violated, Mm -hmm. um, you know, multiple times with my experiences. And so it just gives me pause to reflect on, you know, others who don't have the same social capital that I have. I couldn't agree more. So, Sophie, what are we going to do about this? Right? <laughs> How I mean, can we make our teams more diverse? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't have the luxury of, um, you know, ignoring the problem or not addressing it because though it is everybody's problem, um, you know, you see that there are certain people who are consistently trying to address it more than others. But, um, you know, when you look at the representation of practicing gastroenterologists, I mean, I'll say the latest AAMC data is from 2018, 2019. Um, there is a, a huge disconnect between um, what the practicing gastroenterologists um, represent in terms of race and ethnicity versus, you know, what our country represents, right? Um, and so thinking about the fact that over 30% of our country are um, from underrepresented groups, um, and then when you see that only, you know, 4% of practicing gastroenterologists are Black or, um, you know, I'm not sure what the what the number of Hispanic or, or um, Latinx um, is, but it's it's nowhere near the general population and as well as, um, you know, American Indian and, um, and Pacific Islanders. And, um, you know, that's a problem because we know that there is, um, you know, improvement in patient satisfaction and potentially even outcomes when there's race concordance, right? Um, we know that uh, women gastroenterologists are more sought after by by female patients, right? We know that um, uh, patients who are black and brown are more likely to serve in their communities or underserved communities compared to their white counterparts. So there's a huge opportunity there, but um, we need to include the people, right? And so if we are creating an environment that is inclusive um, and one that fosters belonging, then um, these issues are going to, you know, be perpetuated. And so I think that this kind of slow and steady turtle-like pace move towards uh, inclusive leadership is one way to mitigate that, um, you know, that, that threat to um, inclusiveness. And, and so creating, um, you know, my, more diverse teams really starts with the leader, right? We want to see uh, diversity at every, every rung of the ladder, right? We want to see, um, you know, metrics followed um, and tracked, like not only what the recruitment rate is, but what's the retention rate? Like are people leaving and why are they leaving? Um, 
you know, what kind of mentorship opportunities are out there because we know that black and brown um, uh, trainees and, and young faculty are under mentored compared to their white counterparts. And we know the huge power, right, that mentorship holds. Um, and so all of these things need to be addressed. You know, the minority tax and the majority subsidy are huge issues that are ongoing. And some of that work that is necessary to create more diverse teams, right, create more diverse uh, group of leaders um, suffers when that minority tax is so heavy. And so those are things that we need to have honest conversations about. And some people just really need to relinquish their power for others to thrive. And 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 though, um, you know, DEI work is oftentimes confounded with health equity work, um, though they are separate concepts, we need to understand how much creating, um, you know, a diverse group of gastroenterologists can help to improve health equity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so another way to diversify the team um, is to acknowledge. I'm just going to say this thing. So now another another way to diversify the team is to acknowledge gender bias in the field. Um, can you talk about some of the statistics um, in that area for us? And, and that's for both of you. Um, I'll start by saying that uh, you know there's gender bias all in all areas. I mean, one of the reasons why I went into GI is because there are there were very few women and there's even fewer black women. Um, you know, it's been studied that uh, women, again, women want to see women gastroenterologists. They want to go to gastro, female gastroenterologists. Um, but it, it's difficult. Um, I mean, there, the, the field is growing in terms of um, female representation. But, you know, when you th- see things like lead authorship, when you see things like chairs of, uh, of GI divisions, when you see things like um, you know, I'll say social media capital and reputation. Um, women are are oftentimes on the on the bottom rung of things. And um, think when you think about um, parental leave, right? All of these things make it much more difficult for us to achieve um, what we wish to, um, you know, with our patients in mind and with our career development in mind. And so, um, you know, when you have those two hits against you, right? Uh, that intersectionality um, and intersectional discrimination is a really hard thing to rise above and, and kind of break through. But um, uh, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the reason why we're seeing so few, so few female gastroenterologists or people are hesitant to enter the field. And so, um, you know, it definitely is a huge, huge problem that I think is worth, um, you know, addressing. Because I, I'll tell you that most days that I scope, most days that I do procedures, I mean, without exaggeration, um, over 90% of them are women. Right. Or identifies women. It's like a day of all women. Um, there might be one male in there that like snuck in, but the overwhelming majority of patients I see, and particularly those that I scope, because sometimes I don't even meet them before I scope them for, you know, a screening colonoscopy, for instance, they're women. Um, and so just imagine how hard it is to yes. find a woman. And especially I have a lot of black women who actually come to see me. And, you know, compared to the demographic of where I work, there's there's a, you know, a huge percentage there. Um, and they a lot of times they'll say I found you like I yes. to find yes. you. Like I hear that so often now. And I think um, thankful to, um, you know, the power of social media, people can find each other a little bit more easily. But I mean, they say I looked for you um, and it's for, uh, you know, various reasons, but especially for patients with inflammatory bowel disease or women who are black women, um, but even black men. I mean, they're like, we, you know, we need more of you. Where are you guys? So, <laughs> so this is like a huge problem. I mean, yeah, Nana knows this, like, it's just, um, it's a, it's a real tangible issue um, that that uh, 
you know, we can we can do things to fix if it if it becomes more of a collective effort as opposed to just the the black and brown um, people who kind of care about it, which thankfully we're starting to see a little bit more of and hopefully we'll continue to in the future. Nana, you want to talk a little bit about this leaky pipeline? It's looking very leaky. (laughs) (laughs) So this pipeline doesn't necessarily be fair to me because I'm a nurse practitioner. And, you know, from my experience or from the data out there, more women actually are nurse practitioners, not just, you know, all kinds of women, but mostly white women are nurse practitioners. Um, I, as a black woman, uh, I'm a minority in in this spectrum. Um, but no, more of a gender bias is not seen within my field again. Just, just more women in, 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 um, as nurse practitioners. Women usually tend to be nurses and then they go into advanced training and then become nurse practitioners. So, but the, the, the bias here is, is the, the black and brown people who end up being specialists within gastroenterology. Um, there, we are far and few in between. Um, I'm sort of like, a a, a, a gem here in, in this field where there are very, very few of us that do what we do. Absolutely. And yeah. so important. So important. Um, so what's, what's being done here, ladies? Uh, <laughs> we're trying. Right, what are you doing? What are you doing? Come on. Let's go. What are you doing? <laughs> um, so I can speak to a few things. I mean, I can, I can probably say that I'm the founding president of ABGH, which is the Association of Black gastroenterologist and hepatologist, and I have a feeling, Monica, that that uh, colleague of yours you mentioned um, is a, a wonderful member of our group and has helped us a lot in, um, in um, you know, coming up with creative programming that not only speaks to DEI efforts, but also to health equity efforts. But, you know, at the forefront of our mission is really to improve the GI health in Black communities, right, to promote health equity in Black communities, because, you know, even when you look at digestive cancers, you know, save uh, save one form of esophageal cancer and, and anal cancer, which we'll call it um, a GI cancer, but technically it's up to the skin, but um, black patients suffer the worst in all of these digestive, every single one of them, right? Every single one. Can you imagine? Um, you know, that's, that's insane. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. It's not just, a, it's not about, you know, genetics, right? There's all these other, uh, you know, factors that we're talking about today that relate to social determinants of health. So that's kind of at the top of our list. Um, and so ways to feed into that mission include, um, you know, promoting the careers of black gastroenterologists, hepatologists and digestive um, disease scientists. Right. And advancing science. Right. And, and, and promoting their scholarship um, that's sometimes underrecognized or difficult to achieve. And so, um, you know, we've hit the ground running since 2021 and have had some really exciting programming. And there's there's definitely more to come. And um, and I'm excited to say that it has really kind of helped inspire other groups um coming forward. And I think that those are groups are absolutely necessary when you see all of um, all of the ways that uh, black and brown and other disenfranchised um, communities, um, you know, can have worse outcomes for various reasons. Um, and so other other programs that have been really fantastic in the GI space, um, AGA Health has its health equity project. And um, Sandra Quesada, who is a colleague and a friend, um, was kind enough to share a bit more about the AGA equity project. And I'll let her share more about that. Um, because it really is fantastic. And, you know, having those specific goals and, again, metrics is what we need to succeed um, and that dedicated time to do so. Uh, and I'll also say that our colleagues, I'm sorry, Monica, I'll just say lastly that our, you know, um, I've been 
Um, I've had the pleasure of being a part of the inter-society group on diversity that came together with, um, unfortunately, the, 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 the push was, was, uh, incredibly sad and horrific events in 2020, including the, the very public murder of George Floyd. But it, it, you know, it forced us to, to come together and collaborate, um, with the, you know, as, as, groups that have um, leadership roles in the different national societies to do something collectively. So there's more power, right, in numbers, um, and it involves a leadership. And so, again, in order to make change, you really have to involve the leadership. Um, and uh, and there's actually a study that just um, um, came out today about what people's thoughts are in the GI field um, from these different members um, of the different national societies about where we are in terms of DEI and health equity and where we need to go. And it's very, it's very telling. So I encourage you guys all to read it. It's, um, it's a multi-society um, uh, publication. Um, and so it should be easily accessible. And then I'm finally, looking, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And um, it, 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 it's really fascinating. <laughs> I will let you uh, take a look at the results, but I'll say that, um, you know, it's important to know where people who may not look like you or think like you um, think how, you know, that the field is, is just fine and dandy. Um, and uh, and it's not um, <laughs> quite plainly. But then also patient advocacy groups. Right. Um, those are that's really where the heart of this is. And I will give homage to um, the color of Crohn's and chronic illness, um, the head of which is uh, Dr. Nur, um, not doctor, but she pretty much should be um, Melody Noreen Blackwell, who is a patient with Crohn's disease, who's had it for um, years and years. But she is a patient who is an example of a lot of the stuff we're talking about today, mainly as it relates to people not being believed or delays in diagnosis because people don't realize that certain shades can also have inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. Um, And she has been a gift to, um, you know, to the IBD community that's black and brown and um, really giving people a space where they can be themselves and, um, you know, bring that cultural element to, um, to healing. And just that community is, has been profound and um, it's a really great and rich opportunity for um, collaborations with national society groups to learn about um, what patient perspectives are that are oftentimes, um, you know, not getting the attention they deserve. So that's a mouthful, but um, (laughs) those are the things that are happening right now. (laughs) So wonderful. What a blessing you both have been to me today. And when I said, what's going on, ladies? I didn't expect you to say, well, I've started my own organization. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? What a wonderful conversation. What a, you know, I've learned so much. I've been so inspired by you both. Thank you so much for your brilliant insight and for sharing space with me today. What an honor. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Um, you. So I'm going to put today's conversation into actions that we can all do to provide more equitable IBD care. Um, And then I'm going to let you guys see if I've missed anything. So first, we can all recognize that disparities exist for patients of color with IBD, such as delayed diagnosis due to social determinants of health, medical mistrust, and limited access to newer therapies. We can identify social barriers that can lead to increased burdens of disease. We can screen patients for social determinants of health. We can develop a team approach to address social determinants of health and provide more holistic IBD care. We can implement training for all healthcare team members regarding diversity, inclusion, and unconscious bias. And then last, we can work to create diverse teams of care providers. Anything I've left out? Seems like a great agreement at all. So, okay. Again, I would just really like to thank 
uh, Sophie and Nana for joining me today and to remind our audience that you can join me here for more CMEO podcasts, live webinars, and case discussions, and more including, uh, let me see this here. I would like to thank Sophie and Nana for joining me today and to remind our audience that you can join me here for more CMEO podcasts, live webinars, case discussions, and more, including an upcoming CMEO briefcase in IBD care. You can find out all about the upcoming live events and view previous ones on the DNI Hub link at the uh, DNI Hub. So close. I would like to thank Sophie and Nana once again for joining me today and to remind our audience that you can join me here for more CMEO podcasts, live webinars, case discussions, and more, including an upcoming CMEO briefcase in IBD care. You can find out about all the upcoming live events and view, uh, and view previous ones on the DNI Hub at the link shown here. Here are just some of the topics that we have covered so far, and we will be adding new content every month. Please remember to collect credit for this activity by using the Apply for Credit button that's on your screen. Again, thank you so much, Sophie and Nana, for your input today, and thank you to our audience for all of your work in providing equitable and holistic care to all patients around the globe. Thank you, Monica. Thank you. <laughs>